Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and the godliness, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are the beneficiaries of these great, exceeding great and precious promises. We thank you, Father, that these promises have come to us through the divine power of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that all these promises find their origin in your good and gracious nature. And they have come to us, Father, through the work of Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I would ask and pray this morning as I try to uh, handle this passage in a way that will be, uh, uh, in a sense, stick with the hearers this morning. I pray, Lord, that we might, above all things, understand what this fundamental and what this great blessing is to be partakers of the divine nature. Help us, we pray, Father, not to err in the way that we understand this. But also, Father, help us not to come short of everything that's intended uh, by these words of yours. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, you know that we've been working, for those of you that have been with us, you know that we've been working through this uh, second epistle of, uh, of Peter, uh, just beginning it. Uh, this is our third uh, series in the sermon, excuse me, this is our third sermon in the series. And up to this point, we've uh, examined a number of things, a number of important things, really, when you stop and think about it. The first thing that we saw in verse 1 of this chapter is that the promises and the experience of, of Christian salvation really finds its origin in the grace of God. Everything that you and I know and everything that you and I receive by way of the Christian faith all finds its origin in that eternal well of God's mercy and grace. You see, this is what Peter says again when he said in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We emphasized, you remember in that first sermon, that little word obtained. That word obtained is not the word attain. To attain is to acquire something by achievement. To obtain something is to receive something by grace. You see, it's Peter's purpose in these opening verses, as in this first chapter, to set out what the nature of the Christian life is all about, to make sure that we find our Christian experience grounded in the eternal grace of our loving Heavenly Father. This idea that you have obtained like precious faith. What a wonderful thing. Peter's emphasis there, the idea again, like precious faith. Over and over again in these first four verses, he will be talking about these ideas that we share in common. Did you remember it? Unto us are giving exceeding great and precious promises, not just to the apostles, but unto us. And that's what he meant when he says, we have shared in this like precious faith. You and I share in a faith. You and I have been given, if we can put it in these terms, you and I have been given a faith that even the apostles themselves received. What was the faith that the apostles received? It was a faith that enabled them to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's the faith that you've received. In a world where your faith is challenged, in a world where you have an uphill battle oftentimes, you say to yourself, well, who else will I go to? It's only my Savior that has the words of everlasting life. And you see a faith just like theirs. You have a faith that has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You remember what Peter said when, when our Lord Jesus Christ interrogated him. Who do men say that I am? Again, they gave the answer. Some say this and some say that. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Jesus is always asking that question. Who do you say that he is? You understand? Now, what does the preacher say that he is? Now, what does the world say? Who do you say that he is? You see, this is the real fundamental issue, isn't it? How is your soul with God this day? And what does Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is what you say as well. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you followed Jesus Christ in baptism, what were you saying? You were saying to a watching world that I am following this one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see a faith just like theirs. And so Peter is stressing these things. 
What else did Peter say about this like precious faith? You remember, we tried to spend a little bit of time um, opening up. I didn't spend enough time, and I hopefully will come back to this maybe at some point. But you remember in that first verse that this was a wonderful verse by way of a passage of Scripture that sets before us the divine nature of the person of our Savior. The one through whom we've received this faith is both God and Savior. Did you see it there in the text? Some of your newer translations will, will make it even clearer. But in the King James, it says this, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's purpose there is not to designate God the Father and God the Son. Peter's purpose there is to designate that the one through whom faith has come is both God and Savior. You see, you've received this like precious faith. You profess to a watching world, to an examining world, sometimes, as I said before, to a, to a skeptical world. What do you, what do you proclaim? You, you proclaim that the one in whom you are looking to to be saved is not only your Savior, but he is your God as well. You see, a like faith, like Thomas, like Thomas, what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. So all these things we see here as we come through, this, uh, through these opening verses, through this introduction. We also took a look uh, the last time we were together at verse 2. You remember, uh, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, and of Jesus our Lord. Here were the experiences of Christian graces, grace and peace, grace, that unmerited favor that God gives, grace, that thing that God gives not only to those who are undeserving, but to those who are deserving of his wrath. God gives grace. And this has been your experience. And what has this experience of grace done? It, 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 is, it is the positive, if I can put it this way, peace within your soul. Why do you have peace with God? Because you've experienced His grace. It's one of the great effects of the doctrine of justification, isn't it? Uh, Romans chapter four, ver, uh, Romans chapter five, verse one. Having therefore being, uh, excuse me, uh, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yes, that wonderful doctrine of justification, which so oftentimes receives bad press. How does it receive bad press? Along these lines, oh, you see, there you go again, talking about all these legal categories. Like God is only a judge. Isn't God a father? Yes, he's a father. But never forget that, the, that he is the judge of all the earth. And as judge, he evaluates and he, and he determines the destinies of individual souls. And when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you received the divine acquittal. Of course, there's peace in the soul. Again, having therefore been me, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And what does Peter say here? Grace and peace be multiplied. Aren't you glad that these graces can be multiplied in the life? Aren't you glad that these graces are not just stagnant realities that stand out there, but they are graces that can be multiplied? And you remember the emphasis that we made in that sermon, didn't you? We didn't say grace and peace be divided among the people of God. You see, if God was a finite source of grace and peace, it would have to be divided up among us. But since God is an infinite source of grace and peace, it could be multiplied. Every need you have can be met by the grace and peace of Almighty God. Every circumstance you go through can be, can be, can be met with grace and peace. Grace and peace being multiplied. And you know that your God's not a stingy God, is He? Oh, how He pours out His grace, how He pours out His peace. And so you see these things, Peter bringing us. And again, you remember how we, saw, how we saw the means by which this was multiplied. And I used that somewhat strange expression the last time we were together. And I said, I used that expression, you remember, this idea of a force multiplier. It, 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 it's, it's really, it, it's really a, an expression that's, that's taken from, from military terminology, sometimes in mathematical terminology. And it's the idea that there's something present that, there's something present that multiplies what already is existing. Well, grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God. We made an emphasis at that point on the importance of Christian doctrine. Yes, Christian doctrine. Yes, systematic theology being studied. Isn't it an amazing thing when you learn something new about God, how the soul is exhilarated? Isn't it an amazing thing when you, learn, when you learn something new about the nature of your Savior, how that your heart is drawn out toward Him? And that's what we're seeing here in the Scripture. The grace, the experience of grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge, through that doctrinal understanding that we see in the Scripture. And while we know and we understand that the doctrine and knowledge in the Word of God is never merely intellectual, it is never less than intellectual, 
There are propositional categories that are set forth in the scripture that you and I are to, to embrace. And embracing those, we find that they have a transforming effect in the life, do they not? And so Peter saying all these things, Peter bringing us to this point. And as Peter goes on, he's still, as I said before, he, he's still, he's, he's moving on. He's getting to these divine, these exceedingly great and precious promises. And as I was coming to verses 3 and 4, again, the natural tendency was just to continue in uh, the, uh, the kind of consecutive preaching that we've been engaged in. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. According as his divine power, what does a whole lot to be said about that, has given unto us all things that pertain in the life of Godliness. There's much more that has to be said there. Through the knowledge, there's that force multiplier again of him who has called us to glory and virtue. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. There's, there's a ton of preaching that has to be done. Exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. You see that little phrase has really arrested my attention. That by these, that, literally, if I can put it this way, in order that. In other words, that's what, that's what Peter is driving at. Peter is driving at the expression that through these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. What are the divine prom- What are the exceeding great and precious promises given for? To be partakers of the divine nature. What is the divine power being exercised for? To be partakers of the divine nature. And so, what I want to do this morning is I want to I want to deal with this idea, this this reality of being a partaker of the divine nature. Let me just say this very quickly. I think that this is one of the most this is one of the loftiest expressions in all of the New Testament that describes the nature of the Christian life, partakers of the divine nature. But what we're going to have to do today is I want to, I want to take a look at this uh, reality of uh, being a partaker of the divine nature under four kind of questions. Uh, our outline that we're going to follow today is going to be more analytical than it will be anything else. But the outline, again, will, be a, will, will revolve around a series of questions. And those questions are four. And the questions are as follows that we will use for our outline today. Number one, what does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? What does it mean? What does, it, what, does it, what does the apostle mean here when he says to be a partaker of the divine nature? Number two, what does it not mean? And we have to deal with that. And the reason why we have to deal with that is because error has sprung up around this phrase, partakers of the divine nature. So not only do we have to make sure we know what it is, we have to also make sure we know what it is not. Thirdly, we have to consider how does this come about? How are we made partakers of the divine nature? And then fourthly, we will consider what are the effects of being made partakers of the divine nature. Well, if I was to sum up uh, the, uh, the, the, the entire thrust of this uh, sermon today, it would be under the following proposition. It would be as follows. Through the exceeding great and precious promises, through the divine power of Christ, and through the gift of precious faith, you are made a partaker of the divine nature. Now, in that little proposition, I'm trying to sum up everything that we've kind of dealt with in the passage already. Listen to it once again. Through the exceeding great and precious promises, there's verse 4. Through the divine power of Christ, there's verse 3. Through the gift of precious faith, there's verse 1. You are made partakers of the divine nature. And so, as I said before, we'll have to work through this, uh, through this, uh, uh, through this reality, through this truth, in order to uh, 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 gain advantage from it, in order to make use of it for the for the glory of God. Now, again, I've already I've already said this, but I want to repeat it again. I'm doing this because I am convinced that that this is where Peter is going to in this passage of Scripture. He's really aiming at this. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of deal with the end, so to speak, and then probably next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at each, each of the particulars, how Peter brings us there. I hope you don't mind me treating the passage in this way. And as I said before, it's, it's very important for us to make sure that we know what this passage means and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Now we, have, uh, we have religious cults that uh, are very much, uh, uh, will tell us that, that they become uh, gods, that uh, you know, Mormonism has uh, somewhat of a strange uh, understanding of, uh, of the nature of God and, and what happens to uh, individuals. And so again, we have to make sure that we don't fall into that error. Uh, there's another error, uh, again, that's, uh, that's closer to evangelicalism, and that's uh, with many in, the, in what's known as the Word of Faith uh, movement. And they speak about believers becoming little gods. Well, that's not what this passage of Scripture means. But while we have to make sure that what it doesn't mean, we can't be so afraid of what it doesn't mean that we don't engage ourselves fully in what it does mean. As I said before, this is probably the loftiest expression of Christian experience in the New Testament. I think maybe the, the one that comes closest to it would be Paul's little expression of being in Christ. The concept of being in union with Jesus Christ. 
That whole idea that you and I have become a fit habitation for God. It's amazing. And so again, we want to make sure that we come up to everything that the passage teaches, but we want to make sure that we don't fall into error from the passage as well. So again, let's let's consider then, uh, in this passage of Scripture, the first question we are asking of it. And the first question is this, what does it mean to be made a partaker of the divine nature? Well, as I said before, I have to admit, I love that. I love that phrase. I really do. That, that you and I can be partakers of the divine nature. As I said before, it's so elevated. It, it's so lofty. It's so wonderful to think. Sinners such as we are, partakers of the divine nature. Well, while this is a very lofty expression, one of the things that you and I have to understand is that in the Bible, in many ways, we are prepared for expressions such as this. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that when we take a look at what we are by way of the direct creation of God, we have, among all creatures, the most elevated of statuses. The most elevated status, I guess I should put it that way. That you and I are made in the image of God. That statement in and of itself. You know, this idea of the image of God is, is something that I think in our day really needs to be emphasized. Because we, we, live, we live in a day where people are trying to place the center of their personhood on something other than being made in the image of God. Of course, in our day, personhood is oftentimes, uh, is oftentimes a tied to what we call a gender identity. Sometimes personhood is now tied to sexual expression. Personhood is sometimes tied to what we do by way of a living. Personhood is sometimes tied to what family we belong to. And in reality, personhood is much deeper than that. Personhood and our unity as a human family, if I can say it that way, all is bound up in the reality that we are all made in the image of God. You know what's amazing? God forbids that you and I make an image of Him. But He makes an image of Himself in us. You are the image of God. I see in you something of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so there's a sense in which the Bible prepares us for this lofty expression concerning what salvation is all about. Now we know that the Bible doesn't stop with the declaration that we are made in the image of God. We also know that the Bible goes on very clearly to state that our human nature, Adam, was involved in sin. And that sin had serious serious consequences upon our being made in the image of God. It didn't erase it completely, but oh, did it mar it. There's a sense in which the image of uh, God in man, which was, always in, which was always intended by God to have man always inclining upward, always orientated toward God, there was a sense in which through the fall, man became disorientated and focused on self. This is one of the fundamental rea- this is one of the fundamental distinctions between the old nature and the new nature. In the new nature, in the new birth, by way of being a partaker of the divine nature, you have a nature that is orientated upward. By way of sin, we all have a nature that is orientated inward. And what the Lord Jesus Christ does in the work of the gospel is he renews the image of God in each and every one of us. And so again, this idea of the image of God is so fundamental and so important. Now again, we know again God created man in his image. We have uh, passages of scripture that, um, uh, that bring this out. And oftentimes the question is asked, well, what specifically does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, this has been answered, I think, in the easiest or the most direct way uh, in the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. I believe it's uh, question 10 in the Shorter Catechism. It asks, how did God make man? And the answer goes as follows. God created man, male and female, after his own image, now, these, are, these next points are the ones that you would really want to remember because they really set forth for us what it means to be made in the image of God. Made after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and with dominion over his creations, over his creation. So normally when a discussion of the divine image comes up, usually it, it attends to those first three words, Holiness, righteous, uh, what do we have here? Uh, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And also included with that sometimes is that fourth element of man having dominion over the, creator, uh, over the, over the creation, uh, over the created order. So those ideas, as I said before, knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion really kind of set our understanding as to what it means to be made in the image of God. Now again, as I said before, we know that man fell into sin. 
I find it very interesting that in Genesis 1.26, we read the following. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion. And then in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, after the fall, listen to what we read. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. What do we see here? You and I are all descendants of Adam. You and I bear a nature that has been affected by the fall. Why is it that we see within us things that we can identify as being, as I said before, in their most fundamental sense, orientated inward rather than Godward? It's because of the effects of the fall. And so again, this is what the scripture sets out. And what we see by way of God's uh, great act of, of, of mercy and great act of kindness in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in the gospel, there is, a, there is a, rest, a restoring of the image of God in man. And we see this in a number of places. In, Gal- in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, listen to this. Paul says, and have put on the new man, now listen, which is, create, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Did you get that? Renewed in knowledge. What did we say that one of the, one of the th- uh, four things uh, by way of uh, what it means to be made in the image of God? Paul says here, renewed in knowledge. Again, that corresponds to the fact that knowledge, or if we can put it another way, rationality is an expression or an implication of what it means to be made in the image of God. Why can the soul have fellowship with God? Why was the soul, or excuse me, how was it that the soul of man was able to have this fellowship with God? It's because God as a rational being gave to man the gift of rationality. Because God, who was able to express himself in thoughts, gave to man the ability to understand and to express himself in thoughts. And so when knowledge is corrupted by way of sin, there's that difficulty that comes up by way of fellowship with God. But when the divine nature is partaken of, You see, the knowledge of God is restored in man, given through the scriptures, of course, through the aid of the Spirit of God. Another passage of scripture by way of this renewing work of the Spirit, uh, renewing work of Christ in the gospel, Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Well, there's our other two terms. So we have knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This is what it means for man to be made in the image of God. And these things allow for us to have fellowship and communion with God. You see, if we were not partakers of the divine nature, we would not be able to have fellowship and communion with God. That's what makes this expression so lofty. That's what makes this expression so wonderful. That's what makes this expression so elevated. And so again, the whole idea of man being made in the image of God, that image having been defiled by sin, that image now being restored in the experience of salvation. Well, that brings us, if I can say it this way, really to what now we mean by being a partaker of the divine nature. I tried to set the scene a little bit for it. I tried to show you how, even though it is so elevated, yet in some ways we are prepared for it because of what we are by way of the direct creation of God. But to be a partaker of the, of the divine nature, what, what does that mean? Well, let me, let me read what I have here. To be a partaker of the divine nature means, in a simple yet comprehensive way, it means to enter into the experience of the new birth. It is a comprehensive term for salvation and encompasses all the facets of that gift of salvation in a phrase which elevates humanity and is restored communion with God. Salvation as a gift is singular, but it is a multifaceted gift. And as a gift, it is to be continually opened and unfolded in the life of the believer. This expression, partakers of the divine nature, may be the highest form of expression in relating what salvation is. It is close and maybe even surpasses the Pauline expression of union with Christ, which is, in my understanding, is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. Let me just say a little bit about that. We ask ourselves sometimes the question, what is the most essential, the most fundamental, the most bedrock blessing of the gospel? Many times as evangelical Protestants of the Reformed tradition, we want to make our emphasis on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you if I can put it that way. But I think that union with Christ is even a more fundamental blessing. That we are justified because we are in Christ. It is in Christ that the blessings of God come to us. It's by our union with Jesus Christ. It's by our, by our being joined together with him. And so again, the concept of union with Christ, and I hope, you know, by God's grace in the years to come, to to open up this whole meaning of what it is to be united with Jesus Christ, it is, as I said before, it may indeed be the fundamental blessing of the gospel. 
But this phrase, partakers of the divine nature, I think in some senses is even more elevated than the, than the concept of union with Christ. The two terms, however, union with Christ and partakers of the divine nature, are not competing terms, but they are complementary terms expressing the same truth, that in salvation, sinners are so reconciled to God as to have fellowship with the triune God, becoming the habitation of God, and even in sharing in the nature of God. Sharing in the nature of God. You see how, how high the language gets. And yet we have to make sure that we don't run further than what God intends in the word of God. This language is so exalted and the truth so amazing that we have to not only state what it is to partake of the divine nature, we must also make clear what it does not mean. But I'm not ready to get there yet. To be a partaker of the divine nature. The best way to understand this expression is to see that in salvation we more fully reflect the image of God. Now this image is not in the essence of God as uncreated, infinite, and self-existent, but it takes place or it manifests itself in the moral qualities of his nature. So that when Peter talks about being made a partaker of the divine nature, he's not saying that we become self-existent beings. He's not saying that we have a, a type of independency where we are no longer contingent beings, uh, again, uh, depending on the things around us, the things of the created order and the things of God himself. We do not enter into some kind of mixture of, you know, with the divine essence so that we become humanized gods. That's not what Peter is saying. <clears throat> and Peter helps us to understand this in a number of ways. Throughout Peter's epistles, what he emphasizes when he talks about the believer in his likeness to God or the believer in connection with God always revolves around the moral characteristics of the nature of God. There's a sense, if we want to be technical, we can say that what Peter is talking about is our participation in the communicable attributes of God, not his incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes of God are those things that he has in and of himself that cannot be extended to the creation. The communicable attributes of God are those attributes whereby, as they find their origin in God, find their expression in the renewed person. So that when Peter talks about this idea of being, uh, again, partakers of the divine nature, he's talking about things like this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But he, as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manners of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? To be a partaker of the divine nature then is to share, is to be a partaker in those moral qualities which are expressive of the nature of God. You see, by way of fallen nature, orientation is inward. Sadly, inward and morally downward. To be a partaker of the new nature means that there is a nature implanted within the soul that has its orientation upward. How do we see this? We see this in a number of ways. Sometimes we don't give them the full weight that we should. But we do see this in a number of ways. We experience things or we hear about things or we see things that are, maybe this is too strong of a way of putting it, but are repulsive to our renewed nature. That do offend us, not in the sense that we talk about offending, you know, oh, I'm so offended, but in the sense that, 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 that they, are, they are a burden to our souls by way of what we see. And sometimes not only by way of what we see in others, but by way of what we see in ourselves. You see, if there were no renewed nature, all of that inward turning would have no problem with it at all because it would all be centered around our own gratification. But since the divine nature is orientated upward, there's something, there's something of a repulsion there. Another example is this morning. Here you are. You got up out of bed. You, you purposely came to the, to the house of God to worship. There's one of the, and again, we don't, we don't, like I said before, we don't oftentimes give it much emphasis or, or allow it to have the kind of weight that oftentimes it should. You see yourself conducting uh, yourself throughout your week. And there you are, again, rebuking yourself for, for things that you've said or, or censoring yourself for, for things that you've thought of. Well, that's a, that's, the, that's the divine nature orientated upward. If there were no divine nature within you, if you were not participate, if you were if you're not participating in the divine nature, again, that orientation inward, there'd be no problem with it. You might say, like everybody else says, why shouldn't I? Why, why, why shouldn't I gratify myself? 
And really, when it's all said and done, you know, it's you know, maybe maybe I'll elevate my my fallen nature a little bit. It's it's me and my family. Why shouldn't I do such and such a thing? Oh, you see, but being a participant in the divine nature goes much higher than that. You see, the orientation is upward to the glory of God. Oh, what it means to be a participant in the divine nature. One Puritan, in commenting on this on this phrase, says it like this. This is Thomas Manton. He says the following, By the divine nature is not meant here the essence of God, but his communicable excellencies, or as I said, communicable attributes, his communicable excellencies, or such divine properties as can be imparted to the creature, and these not considered in their absolute perfection, but as they are agreeable to our present state and capacity. You see, there's a sense in which you and I are who and what we are, aren't we? Some of you are blessed with, with greater capacities, capacities than others. But whatever the capacity is by way, of, uh, the, by way of God's divine design, the capacity can be filled to the fullness of, the, of, of participating in the divine nature. And so again, there's not a transfusion, if I can put it that way, of divine essence into the person, of the, uh, 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 you know, into the nature of the person, but the moral qualities that are found in God now find reflection in the nature of man. <clears throat> this brings us, uh, maybe more quickly than I want, but this brings us, again, very quickly to, to what it does not mean to be a partaker of the divine nature. Again, let me read the following. This language is so exalted and this truth so amazing that we have not only to state what it is to partake of the divine nature, we must also make clear what it does not mean. Now, what's interesting is that when we talk about this this verse, there are, again, approaches to this verse which are absolutely in error. Any approach to this verse that makes man into a little god is if not an error, an outright heresy. And we have many in our day who use this passage of Scripture to teach that. As I said before, not only error, heresy. We also have uh, others who use this passage of Scripture, and it may not be elevated to heresy, it may not be elevated to uh, the, you know, the, 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 the seriousness of, of what I've just spoken about, but they are still using it in the wrong way. It's very interesting that this concept of participating in the divine nature, believe it or not, introduces us to one of the more, um, to to overuse the word, one of the more interesting distinctions between Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. Western Christianity being represented by uh, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, Eastern uh, Christianity being represented by uh, Greek Orthodox thought, Russian Orthodoxy, uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the more historical uh, uh, denominations that find their their, their geographical center uh, in the, in the Middle East, <clears throat> and particularly in the in uh, Greek uh, uh, Eastern uh, Greek Orthodoxy, this passage of Scripture is used to incorporate an idea that's called uh, theosis. Theosis, the word for God, and and the idea is that we become more and more like God. And some of the language is, some in my estimation, and and, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm no expert in this. I I, I am a, a, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm a local pastor. There are men much more qualified to make these statements than I am. But from my observation, they there are statements that that bring us, I think, very close to what we should be understanding by this passage, but. In one sense, it goes beyond, and we have to be careful of that. And that's why I'm, I'm trying to, to, to express to you that I don't want the fear of error to keep us from participating in the fullness of that idea. Partakers of the divine nature. Have you conducted yourself in this past week according to that? Have I? Partakers of the divine nature. Are you willing to look forward to this week in light of that? Partakers of the divine nature. To think of what that will mean not only in life but in eternity. And so you see while there's much that we have to say, okay, wait a minute, we we don't want to go there. But hey, we don't want to throw the classic expression, the baby out with the bathwater. There is something to be loved by way of... By way of what God is doing in this passage of Scripture. 
So again, we need to understand, as I said before, what you know what it is and what it is not. Let me just <clears throat> also kind of jump back a little bit here now to what it is, and because what I want you to see that I, I am convinced that in this in this phrase that the apostle Peter is talking about uh, realities that uh, that are used that are expressed otherwise in other places in the New Testament. As I said before, I'm convinced that um, that. Peter here is is mirroring in a very real way, maybe even going beyond uh, the language of the Apostle Paul. When Paul says things like this, Christ in you, uh, the hope of glory. When when the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, again, God dwelling in the believer, how you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I think it's also very close to what the Apostle John talks about when he talks about being born again. You see this idea of a new nature being given. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What kind of fruit comes from the branch? The same kind of fruit that's the nature of that branch. And so you see there is a real expression of our union with Jesus Christ. There's a real expression of a real participation in that union. And what we have to say is is in a way that is somewhat mystical to us. But it's wonderful. And again, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to shy away from that. So again, we see passages of scripture like the following. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, the sons of God. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 10, For they verily for a few days chasten us after our own pleasure, but, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Again, there's that idea of the communicable attribute of God's holiness. 1 John 15, verse 5, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And so again, what we see here is this wonderful expression of what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Well, how how does this reality come about? How does the reality of our being a partaker of the divine nature come about? Well, I think it's found right here in the text itself. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that everything that we've seen up to this point, and again, we've not considered verse 3, we're going to pick that up next week, but everything, everything that we've seen up to this point is leading to how it is that we become partakers of the divine nature. Notice, <laughs> we become partakers of the divine nature by, number one, obtaining as a gift this precious faith. Obtaining as a gift this precious faith. Amen. You see, I can't... I can't create a new nature in me. It's not in my nature to do that. can't do anything beyond what my nature is able to do. But God can create in me a new nature. And that's what he's done in the gift of faith. So the first way this new nature comes about is through the precious faith, <clears throat> which Peter has spoken of. <clears throat> this, this, this participation in the divine nature comes also, again in verse 1, through the righteousness of God our Savior Jesus Christ. Now again, this introduces us to another one of the classic doctrines of the Reformation. That idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That Christ works out a righteousness for you and me that we are unable to work out in ourselves. And that no matter how good we may try and how much we may try to please God, even our best works are tainted with sin. You've heard those expressions, haven't you? You know that even when you pray on your best day, Jesus must intercede for you with those prayers and in a sense perfect those prayers. In our worship here this morning, and yes, even in the preaching, there's a sense in which as it ascends to the Father, Jesus must perfect it. He's our mediator. He never stops mediating for us. And you see that the way we become uh, partakers of the divine nature is through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, that wonderful, that classic doctrine of imputation of Christ's righteousness. Also, thirdly, what we see is this. In verse 2, again, there's that force multiplier that I talked about. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. We say, well, how does that, how does that make me, uh, how does that enable me to be a, participate, uh, a participant in the divine nature or to be a partaker of the divine nature? Well, it does it essentially by this. It's through the knowledge of God. It's through the knowledge of God and our Father. Well, what does, okay, so what does that mean? Well, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of His holiness the knowledge of his justice, the knowledge of his righteousness, the knowledge of his wrath. It extends to the knowledge of man, the knowledge of my unrighteousness, the knowledge of my sin, the knowledge of my moral debt before God. 
You see, this understanding of the knowledge of God then is, and in one sense, the expression of gospel truth. And as gospel truth is revealed, and as gospel truth is embraced by the work of the Spirit in the heart, this is what brings about participation, the effect, the, the, again, the effect of what the work of the Spirit of God is in the preaching of the gospel. So again, through the, through the righteousness, through the knowledge of Him. And look at verse 3. How, do, how, does this, how, do, how does this reality of, of being a, 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 a participating in the divine nature, how does this come about? Look at verse 3. According to His divine power. This is all happened by the power of God. Over and over again in these first four verses, Peter is hammering home the fact that salvation is a work of God done on behalf of man. It's not something that we kind of say, God, you do your part and I'll do my part. I know, but help me. No, God brings it to bear in the life of the sinner. And yes, there is the expression of faith, true faith. But Peter is even emphasizing here that that faith, when it's all said and done, is a faith that we have to give God thanks for. And so we see God working through the divine power. We'll pick this up next week, but just by way of a preview, did you notice here again in verse 3, according to his divine power, can you think through who the pronoun is referring back to there? According to his divine power, this is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter again is making this emphasis on the divine nature of Christ. I find it amazing that Peter is able to, to, clear, to clearly state the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to speak about uh, the, the intimate relation between a God the Father and God the Son in such a way that in our reading of it, in our hearing of it, we don't always pick up. We just think, oh, that must be, that must be referencing God. And Peter would say, yes, it is. It's referencing God your Savior. It's referencing God the Son. And so what we see here is this very elevated, this very elevated view of the person of Christ. That's why, again, as I was preparing, again, for these sermons as a, as a whole, one of the things that I was thinking about, boy, there are a lot of doctrinal, there are a lot of formal doctrinal uh, uh, centers, I might say, in this, in, in this second epistle. That's why Peter says, I think it's in verse 17, we were eyewitnesses of what? Of his majesty. Christological statement. Who is Christ? He's not just a man who exists, who existed in, in, in humiliation. He is the Lord of glory. You see these ideas all coming through. So again, it's by, this, uh, by, it's by this like precious faith. It's, by, it's through the knowledge of God. It's by His divine power. And again, it's by, it's by way of the exceeding great and precious promises. As I said before, a whole lot of preaching to do there. Exceeding great and precious promises. What promises are these? Again, just by way of preview. What are the promises of the new covenant? I will take out of you a stony heart and I will put my spirit within you. I will give you a heart of flesh. It's the promises of the coming of the spirit of God. I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter. It's the promise of the ongoing work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit. You see, exceeding great and precious promise. And it's by these that now you are made partakers of the divine nature. Have you embraced these promises? Are these promises yours? And then lastly, I say this. What's the effect then of these divine, of being made a partaker of the divine nature? What's the effect of it? Well, there are probably six of these. I'm not, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to develop each one of these, but I do want you to be aware of these. In at least six areas of, of, of human experience, uh, being a partaker of the divine nature has, uh, evident, has uh, evident results. And the first is this, is that by being made a partaker of the divine nature, intellectually now, the blindness of sin and the effects of sin upon the mind have now been removed and in some sense neutralized. Now we still have to deal with some of, some of that reality. I'm not saying that they're completely gone, but I want you to understand that by virtue of being a partaker of the divine nature, there is in you now the ability to see spiritual truth that you never would have seen before. You now have spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth. You now have, if I can put it this way, Bible eyes to see Bible truth. So not only intellectually, but also in the will God has worked. And oh, I think this is one of the most important things that we can understand. As I said before, the will now orientated upward rather than being orientated inward. Emotionally, there are effects of being a participant, a partaker of the divine nature. How many times do we see over and over again that the effects of the gospel on the emotional life of the believer are expressions like happiness, peace, and joy? These blessings are yours. 
And I know the difficulties of life kind of cramp in on that. I know there are great challenges of that. But don't let your circumstances rob you from these things. As a matter of fact, in your circumstances, put these things to the test. The realities of everything that it means for, for God to come into the soul. So again, intellectually, uh, by way of the will, uh, volitionally, emotionally. We also see it morally and ethically. Again, what do we see in the, in the life of the believer other than a transformed life? A life that is more and more being conformed to the image of Christ. A life whereby we express in our imperfect ways something of the holiness of God, something of the love of God. You see, these are the effects of being made partakers of the divine image. Relationally, relationships are restored. Why can we have relationships restored with one another? Because the most important relationship has been restored. We now are at peace with God. We're reconciled with God. We can be reconciled with one another. Is it, is it, any, quite, is it any wonder when, in, when we experience individuals who are unreconciled to God that we find them to be irreconcilable? You understand what I mean? Just can't get along with them. They bend over backwards. And oftentimes the reason why is because at the root, they're not reconciled to God. But let a man, let a woman be reconciled to God. Oh, you see then how much easier it is to understand the failings and the faults of others. How much easier it is to express by way of apology to others our own faults. You see these things all come together. But there's one more element, there's one more uh, effect of uh, being made a partaker of the divine nature that I really want to bring out. And that's eternally. And one of the, one of the ways in which you know, our theologians talk about what it means to enter into eternity with God, <clears throat> and it's expressed a number of ways in the scripture, but they use a phrase that's, called, that's, that's referred to as the beatific vision. And what the beatific vision is, it is that vision granted to those who are the children of God to see God. This is one. This is this is this is heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And it doesn't mean to see Him in an external way. It doesn't mean to see. It means to see Him by way of entering into all that He is. It is, in a very real sense, what makes heaven heaven. This thing called the beatific vision. Now, let me see if I can just. <clears throat> Make some mention here. The immediate and con- the, the, this immediate contemplation, or this unmediated contemplation of the, of, of, of the infinite essence of God, which, as conferring the highest conceivable degree of bliss, is generally spoken of as the beatific vision, and must be regarded as a strictly supernatural endowment of grace, not analogous to any faculty at present possessed by man. Maybe that's why all of you had something of a blank stare on your face when I mentioned beatific vision and what it means to have the blessedness of seeing God. You see, there's not much. To, we can maybe apprehend a little bit of it, but there is such a fullness of it that, it that yet awaits the people of God. And again, this all comes about because of our being partakers of the divine nature. The writer says this, Hence, Christian thought has always recognized that in order to attain the immediate vision of the divine essence, the human soul must be lifted above the natural order altogether and made to partake of the divine nature. And so far as this is possible without complete absorption into the Godhead, that's the error that I was talking about, and even deified as the Greek fathers do not hesitate to express it. Now, as I said before, in Greek Orthodox thought, this idea of deification they use it kind of, kind of as how we express the whole experience of salvation. And I'm saying that we, should not <clears throat> that we should not go over into that line of thinking. But I do have to say this, that they have really engaged the idea of what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. And so what am I, what am I hoping to do here today? First and foremost, I want you to give thanks to God Almighty for such an experience as, as is yours in the gospel. Partakers of the divine nature, so elevated, so exalted the thought, so wonderful the expression. I want to make sure that you don't fall into error there, but please embrace it. But the other thing I want you to do is this. I want you to think about this fact of being a partaker of the divine nature. 
And I have to ask this question. Are you willing to nurture that nature that is now in you through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to take the necessary steps? And this is what Peter's going to talk about when we get to verse 5 through verse 10. He's going to talk about add to your faith this and add to your virtue this. He's going to talk about the development of the life of the Christian. Are you willing to nurture the life that God has imparted into your soul? You see, again, in one sense, it is a challenge to you. In another sense, it is just reflecting what's already there. Because what orientation does the new nature have? The orientation of the new nature is upward toward God. And if we are not willing to nurture that nature that God has placed in us, I say this as pastorally as I can, it may be a mark that a new nature is not present. I hope that's not the case for any of us. So be willing to nurture the nature that God has given to you. Is salvation a multifaceted gift? And I'm convinced that it is. When we come on our Sunday night sermons to, to consider the doctrine of justification by faith alone, one of the things that I will say probably repeatedly is this. If you know everything there is to know about justification, that does not mean that you know everything there is to know about salvation. In other words, justification is just one aspect of the larger work of God's salvation. And sometimes we make the error by thinking because we know a whole lot about justification, that means that we know everything there is to know about salvation. That's not true. Salvation, while it is a singular gift, is many-faceted. And I have to ask you this question. Have you continually opened up and unfolded the gift of salvation that God has for you? There are elements and aspects of the Christian life that are experienced in a new way daily. New mercies every day. New graces every day. Grace and peace being multiplied. So are you opening up those, uh, that all, all those elements of the gift of salvation, which is many-faceted? So these are the things that we see here <clears throat> by way of what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. I know I developed this theme uh, to some extent here today, but I did that purposely. As I said before, I did that because I am convinced that that's what Peter is pressing at in verses 3 and 4. Next week, we'll come back and we're going to look at all the, all the ways how Peter steps us up to this. Hopefully, it will, hopefully it will not be anticlimactic, uh, but hopefully it will be uh, informative. Uh, and not only informative, but hopefully it will encourage and inspire you to fully participate in that divine nature which you are partakers of through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can call you Father because we are partakers of your divine nature. Amazing, Father. We can't fully grasp it. We don't want to fall into error with this, but neither do we want to shy away from it, Father. We ask and we pray, Lord God, let our, let our sails be completely unfurled, Lord God, and let the wind of the truth and the wind of your Spirit blow fully within us and take us along, Lord God, to where you would have us to go. Lead us and guide us by your Spirit. Direct us through your Word, we pray. May we never go beyond what your Word says, but, more, but, wait, but may we never come short of it either. So, Father, work these things here, I pray. And I do pray, Lord God, for all those who are gathered here today that each and every one of them might indeed by faith be a partaker of the divine nature. And I would even ask and pray right now, Father, if there is any question in their mind whether or not they have fully entered into the experience of being a partaker of the divine nature, the experience of being truly a son or a daughter of yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, remove all hindrances and grant to them, I pray, Father, that gift of faith whereby very simply... They say, they say to you and they say to the Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon my soul and save me. Grant this, I pray, Father, for the glory of your name and for the good of that individual soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.